Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Blair. Wanna hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Are you looking for more ways to satisfy your dark curiosity? Heart Starts Pounding, Horrors, Hauntings, and Mysteries is an award-winning weekly podcast hosted by Kaylin Moore. From centuries-old curses and Appalachian folklore to Chilean Nazi cults to terrifying urban legends that turned out to be true, if you're looking to join a passionate community of the darkly curious, check out Heart Starts Pounding at heartstartspounding.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The tired man sat at his computer, typing up his latest marketing report. It was 2.45 p.m., and he was already half an hour behind, far too late to please his boss. He only hoped that if he turned it in soon, he might be able to keep his job. He checked his phone, hoping it wasn't his boss asking about his progress. Instead, the screen displayed a warning. Earthquake incoming. Magnitude, blah, blah, blah. Earthquakes happened frequently in Japan. Most of them were so weak they could hardly even be felt. He didn't have time to worry about this. It would simply come and go as dozens of earthquakes had before. His report was far more urgent. He resumed typing, refocusing on the task at hand. A moment later, his concentration faltered. The building shook and trembled around him. The walls cracked. His phone chimed again. Earthquake too powerful to measure. Devastating tsunami soon to follow. He felt his gut drop. His hands froze on the keyboard. He no longer cared about the report. His building was only two stories tall and miles away from high ground. He was going to die. Welcome to Natural Disasters, the ParCast original exploring the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Bill. Every Thursday, we'll follow a cataclysmic event that makes the significant seem insignificant. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on the 2011 Tohoku Tsunami, a massive wave that devastated the coast of Japan and became the single most costly natural disaster in recorded history. This week, we'll cover the 9.1 magnitude earthquake that caused a devastating tsunami in 1960 and how it set the precedent for how Japan responded to the tsunami that struck in 2011. Next week, we'll cover the 2011 tsunami's devastating impact as well as the terrifying nuclear power plant failure that followed in its wake. The ocean is full of dangers, both large and small. Unfortunately, people who live near the water can be lulled into a false sense of security thanks to its cool breezes, spectacular views, and plenty of fish to dine on. They forget that the ocean can be fickle and downright deadly. When its waters are stirred, its waves can crash against the land, destroying everything and everyone in its way. The most devastating form of these incidents are tsunamis. Tsunami is a Japanese word that literally translates to harbor wave. While accurate, the name harbor wave doesn't quite capture the sheer power of a tsunami. In the open ocean, tsunamis can travel at startling speeds of up to 500 miles per hour. Yet these frightening waves are rarely noticed by sailors as they only raise water levels by a single foot. As the waves reach shallow waters near the harbors, the bottom of the wave slows substantially as it drags against the seafloor. At the same time, the upper layers of the waves continue at high speeds, reaching up and crashing against the shore. Yet even as the water hits the shore, its momentum causes it to pile up, building to terrifying heights. Most tsunami waves tend to be 10 feet tall and reach hundreds of feet inland. However, some have been measured at over 100 feet tall, a petrifying and awe-inspiring wall of water that cannot be outrun. These waves have been known to capsize ships, toss around semi-trucks, and destroy entire buildings. At their most powerful, they can wipe entire cities off the map. To make matters worse, tsunamis never appear as a single wave. They tend to rack coastlines in a devastating series of landfalls. While normal waves are typically only separated by 5 to 20 seconds, tsunamis can touch ground anywhere from 10 minutes to 2 hours apart. The extensive wait time between waves often lulls people into a false sense of security. When one round recedes, people rush in to survey the devastation, only to be subsumed by the sea themselves as the next wave strikes with a vengeance. These oceanic outbursts can last for days. It is often incredibly difficult to tell when the ocean has returned to its normal peaceful state. Once the ocean has stilled, the possibility of another tsunami hitting the coastline in the years to come is also incredibly high. Almost any kind of disruption can trigger another wave. A tsunami occurs when massive amounts of water are rapidly displaced. 
This can be caused by volcanic eruptions, calving icebergs, landslides, and even meteorites landing in the ocean. Of course, tsunamis are most often caused by undersea earthquakes. The larger the quake, the more devastating the tsunami. It's only natural then that the single strongest earthquake to ever hit Japan resulted in one of the most destructive tsunamis in recorded history. March 11, 2011 began as a peaceful day in the city of Tokyo. At least it was as peaceful as the bustling city could be. Everybody went about their business, more than 13 million people moving through the streets. At 2.45 p.m., cell phones, news stations, and radio towers all began ringing with a unique tone. It sounded like two bells dinging. This was the Japan Meteorological Agency's earthquake early warning system in full effect. The system had been established four years earlier in 2007, but the people had never received an alert this dire. The warning came with a message. High magnitude earthquake incoming. Get to safety immediately. Bullet trains slammed on their emergency brakes, sliding to a stop. Factories throughout the city shut down production, bringing dangerous machines to a standstill in order to protect their workers. Occupants scrambled out of elevators just before they locked in place. Any individuals who were close to edges of buildings or cliffs scrambled as quickly as they could to get away from a potential fall. Mere moments after the warning, the ground began to shake. People on the street froze in place. As the ground rocked and rumbled, the citizens of Tokyo did their best to stay on their feet. Some clung to nearby trees, others dropped to the ground. The skyscrapers around them wavered in the air like blades of grass in the wind. Inside those same buildings, books were knocked off shelves. Computers fell off desks. TV screens mounted on walls crashed to the floor. People attempted to take shelter, but the unsteady floor kept them from steadying themselves. Many screamed, some tripped on their own feet, others were pelted with picture frames and debris. Many of them stood as still as they could, praying that the quake would end quickly and that their buildings would remain standing. The lights flickered, then went out completely. People covered their heads, hoping nothing would strike them in the darkness. Outside, the sun shone on scenes of destruction. Roadways and sidewalks began to crack. Some sections of ground shattered, concrete flecks of sidewalk thrown in all directions, the earth itself leaving gaping chasms. Power lines snapped, spreading blackouts all throughout the city. Sewage drains broke, causing foul odors and liquids to ooze across the vibrating ground. The quake continued for what felt like an eternity. In reality, it lasted six minutes, roughly 12 times longer than the average earthquake. It would be some time before the people of Tokyo could take complete stock of the aftermath. They knew it would take some time to repair the damage to Tokyo and get the power running once again. But all things considered, this outcome could have been much worse. The city of Tokyo had clearly been prepared to withstand such a massive force of nature. 
They owed it all to the intimate understanding Japan's geologists had of earthquakes and what causes them. Earthquakes occur when two tectonic plates slide against each other. The plates build up stress and tension. Then once that stress is released, the ground slaps together. The massive movement results in jarring shifts in the earth above. Japan is particularly susceptible to earthquakes because the archipelago is located on the junction of four tectonic plates: the Eurasian, the North American, the Pacific, and the Philippine plates. The intersection of these four massive plates results in all sorts of friction. Prior to the incident in 2011. Japan experienced over 300 earthquakes per day, the majority of which were so tame they couldn't even be felt. For centuries, Japan has known about its propensity for quakes, and modern engineers planned their cities accordingly. Many of Tokyo's structures are built specifically for unstable ground. Sometimes entire buildings are even placed on rolling wheels so they can move with the quake. Rather than collapse when the earth shifts beneath them, the city's infrastructure had been so well designed that when the earthquake struck in 2011, most of Japan didn't even know how powerful it had been. A deep earth monitoring lab run by Tohoku University in Sendai, the laboratory closest to the epicenter of the earthquake, couldn't even properly measure the strength of the earthquake. Their seismographs were only built to measure earthquakes that reached about 8.0 on the Richter scale. Scientists would later find this earthquake was roughly a 9.1. This was the fourth most powerful earthquake ever recorded. The city of Tokyo had successfully withstood a disaster of massive proportions. Unfortunately, the rest of Japan would not be so lucky. The true disaster was still about to strike. We'll learn about when the tsunami first crashed against Japan after this. Now back to the story. On March 11th, 2011, at 2:46 p.m., Japan was shaken to its core by the strongest earthquake the country had ever experienced. The epicenter was located at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, 81 miles east of the Tohoku region of Japan. Some wise people on the coasts knew what would happen next. When his building was still rocking back and forth, Kenji Saito, the owner of the Sweet and Cake Company, began to yell at his employees, "Everyone, let's go. Go. There's a tsunami coming. Please get out now. Turn off the lights and get out. Evacuate." Kenji knew they only had a short amount of time to get to higher ground before the deluge came and swept everything out to sea. He knew because he remembered the last tsunami that had destroyed his town in 1960. He had been only 11 years old. At 3:11 p.m. on May 22, 1960, Japan suffered the fallout of an event that occurred halfway around the world. That afternoon, Chile was devastated by an enormous earthquake of their own. The quake had occurred 100 miles off the Chilean coastline. But it still broke through the city of Valdivia, destroying nearly half of all the buildings and killing dozens of people. Shortly after the shaking stopped, a massive tsunami radiated out across the Pacific Ocean, 
the waves barreled towards Chile's shores at 400 miles per hour. After only 15 minutes, the water had grown to a towering 80 feet tall. The tsunami dashed onto shore, consuming people and buildings in its frothy wake and dragging them out to sea. The record-setting earthquake and the destructive tsunami claimed 1,655 lives in Chile and injured 3,000 more. The destruction also left 2 million people without homes as it had dragged their houses into the briny depths. But the tsunami hadn't only hit Chile. After 14 hours, the waves had traveled around 5,800 miles north to the coast of California. Luckily for the Californians, the angle of its trajectory had reduced much of the wave's power. Some parts of the state saw waves that stood only 5.6 feet tall, restraining the damage to boats and harbors. Hawaii was not nearly as lucky. After 15 hours, the tsunami slammed its full force against the southern shores of the Hawaiian Islands. Even after 6,200 miles of travel, the waves crested at 35 feet tall. The brunt of the impact was leveled against the residents of Hilo Bay. The water tore through the shoreline, resting wooden homes from their foundations, dashing their planks and boards against the ground. Ultimately, 500 buildings were demolished by the waves, both homes and places of business. Amidst the debris, 61 people were thrust into a watery grave. All in all, the disaster cost the people of Hilo Bay dozens of their loved ones, many of their homes, and $75 million. And yet, the tsunami had still not finished its destructive path. Over the next several hours, the waves continued on their course, stretching over 10,000 miles across the Pacific Ocean to reach the shores of Japan. Kimura Kunio stood on the dock pacing. It was his job to pace, or at least almost all he did was pace and watch the sea. Kimura was a fireman in Onagawa, a small fishing village on the coast of Miyagi Prefecture. He was always willing to rush into burning buildings and save any who might be trapped inside. But more often than not, nothing in the town was burning, and nobody in the town needed saving. Onagawa was a peaceful place, especially at night. Kimura checked his watch. In the darkness, he couldn't quite tell the minute, but it was certainly past four in the morning. He yawned and stretched his arms. He would get to go back to the station soon and get some rest. His rounds were almost complete. He looked at the rolling black waves of the nighttime sea, stars reflecting off its cool, clear surface. He watched the water lap against the sand, then turn back and roll into the ocean, synchronizing his breath with its movements. He breathed in as it climbed back up the dock, then exhaled as it pulled away once more. He held his lungs still, waiting for its return, as he waited, and waited, it just wouldn't come back. His eyes raced further down the beach. It looked like the sea itself had left the shores. His heart began pounding, and he turned, racing up the dock. He reached the firehouse and rang the emergency bell, waking everyone inside. He began yelling, 
Telling everyone they needed to evacuate the town, the men hopped on fire trucks and tore down the streets, sirens blaring. They went door to door, making sure to wake everyone in the village. The panicked firemen spurred the town into action, rousing dazed civilians from their beds. The streets began to fill with townspeople, and Kimura led them up the nearest hill, driving them as far up as they could possibly go. He urged them, young and old, to go as fast as they could. They couldn't risk moving slowly. Either they ran, or they died. The urgency of the situation became all the more apparent as an immense sound rose in the distance. It was a deep and foreboding rumbling coming from the darkness, coming for them. Kimura helped the last straggler reach the top of the hill, just as he heard the wave crash against the buildings. The people all turned to watch as best they could in the night. They saw shadows drifting in the water as it tore through all that they had built, all that they had loved. Kimura checked his watch. The waves had arrived at 4.45 in the morning. He looked at the people around him, distressed but alive. Despite the destruction that was happening just downhill, Kimura smiled. At least they still had each other. Thanks to fireman Kimura Kunio's watchful eyes and knowledge of tsunami signs, he had managed to wake the entire city of Onagawa and usher its people to safety. The town was buffeted by waves that stood 14 feet tall. Most of the buildings were destroyed, but not a single person had been swept into the waters. People in other parts of Japan were not so lucky. Up and down the coast of Honshu, the central and largest island of Japan, a total of 138 people were subsumed by the tsunami. Thousands of buildings were destroyed, and it would cost millions to repair the damage. The 1960 Chilean tsunami had an enormous impact on the Japanese people, especially those who lost their homes and loved ones. Following its devastation, Japan swore to never allow such a thing to happen again. They began to rebuild. New businesses sprung up where old ones had been broken down. New homes were constructed where families had lived for generations. Docks were moored to help the fishermen return to their way of life. But this time, the Japanese took additional steps to protect everything they had just rebuilt. They constructed seawalls, massive concrete barriers between the land and the sea. If a seawall is tall enough, they can sometimes stop tsunamis from hitting the mainland. Instead, the waves would splash harmlessly against the barrier, and all would be well. The construction of seawalls became one of the most massive public works projects the country has ever seen. Over the course of several decades, the Japanese covered 40% of their coastline with protective walls. They specifically centered that construction around high-risk areas where powerful earthquakes were most likely to occur. One of these seawalls was the largest in the entire world. It was meant to protect the town of Kamaishi, which held several major power plants within its limits. The wall was 1.2 miles long. Its foundations were 209 feet deep, and it stood 10 feet above the high tide water level. All in all, it cost $1.5 billion to construct. Japan built over 8,800 miles of seawalls all across their eastern coast. 
Many thought these imposing shields would keep them safe against the raging sea. Unfortunately, their walls would soon be breached. We'll discuss what happened when the 2011 tsunami finally struck Japan after this. Now, back to the story. On May 22, 1960, the most powerful earthquake ever recorded rocked the coast of Chile. The ensuing tsunami was so powerful that it traveled all the way across the Pacific Ocean and killed over 100 people in the coastal areas of Japan. In order to prevent another devastating event from destroying their country, the Japanese government proceeded to construct over 8,000 miles of protective seawalls. Then they began to rebuild their towns. The harbors became still and peaceful once again, perfect for the fishermen who made their livelihoods bringing in large hauls from the ocean. With the passing of time and the passing of generations, the 1960 Chilean tsunami shifted from an open wound to a weathered old scar. The sea walls made many young Japanese residents feel protected from the sea and all its potentially violent actions. The scar the tsunami had left began to fade into a distant memory. But 51 years later, on March 11, 2011, the nation was shaken by the most powerful earthquake Japan had ever experienced. Citizens braced themselves in Kamaishi, a town of about 40,000 people, a little more than 270 miles north of Tokyo. Kamaishi stretches across the shorelines of four separate bays squeezed between the coast and the steep rocky mountainsides that typify the northern part of Honshu Island. Kamaishi was also the town closest to the epicenter of the record-breaking quake. That proximity would soon make it the first town devastated by the unstoppable waves of the tsunami that followed. Takayuki Saijo, a local TV cameraman, rushed out of his workplace and began filming as soon as the earthquake started. He wanted to capture the effects of the quake for posterity. When the shaking stopped, he filmed the people near him gather their bearings. Some wiped the dust off their clothing, then calmly began walking down the street, returning to business as usual. He continued to film, not thinking of the potential dangers to come. He looked to buildings to see if he could find any cracks, but instead he saw something strange. A man and a woman were pushing a cart full of small children. The children stood on their feet, bundled together with fear in their eyes. The man and woman pushed the cart up the hill as quickly as they could. Takayuki was confused. Where were they heading? He continued filming as they sped past him. Several minutes passed and he decided he'd gotten enough coverage. He began to put his camera away, but then in the distance, he heard sirens. He looked down the street and saw a fire truck, its lights flashing and horn blaring. He could hear a voice coming from a loudspeaker saying something to the effect of, Tsunami incoming, evacuate immediately. Takayuki, finally realizing the danger, raced to his car. He placed the camera on the dash, started the engine, and began to drive. He sped up the road, trying to get to high ground as quickly as possible. As he drove, he saw people walking calmly 
as if they hadn't a care in the world. He rolled down his window and began shouting at each person as he passed, Tsunami! Get to high ground! Some of the people were jolted into action just as he was. They sprinted up the hill or raced to their own vehicles. Others merely picked up their pace, fast walking to relative safety. And still others waved him away, as if he was an untrustworthy boy screaming about the big bad wolf. Takayuki felt his heart drop. These people simply didn't know what danger was about to overtake them. But he kept driving. If they wouldn't listen, there was nothing he could do to save them. He only had time to save himself. He drove as far as he could up to the nearest mountain. A stairway to a lookout point scaled the side of the mountain face, throngs of people lining the walkway. It seemed like almost all of the town had managed to make it to safety. He was happy that so many people had known to evacuate. He stepped out of his vehicle and grabbed his camera. He began jogging to the stairway. As he ran, he noticed people on the raised walkway pointing and looking in the distance. Others began waving at him, urging him to move faster. He picked up his pace, and when he reached the stairs, he scaled them just as quickly. When he got to a point where he felt safe, he turned the camera towards the bay where the crowd was pointing. Peering over the roofs of homes, warehouses, and factories, he could see the water in the bay, still as always. The mountains towered over each side of the water, stretching miles away to the entrance of the bay. He zoomed his camera in as far as it could go, and there in the distance, he saw a thick line of white. As the white line approached, the image became more clear. It was the frothing, lashing head of a massive tsunami wave. The crowd hoped the 209-foot deep seawall around the bay would save the town from destruction. The seawall was meant to operate as an impassable barrier. Instead of crashing against the sea and building more force, the tsunami would expend all its energy breaking against the mound of concrete. At least most weaker tsunamis would do just that. The wall was meant to be taller than the average tsunami wave. But this tsunami was so massive, so tall, it easily barreled over the wall, and it was charging towards them, forming a massive wall of its own. As the hulking wave powered its way through the bay, the people could hear it approaching in the distance. It sounded like a 100-ton freight train charging down the tracks at top speed, completely out of control. Those on the cliffs began screaming at those on the streets below. Dozens of them were still only walking towards the steps, unaware of how close the wave was and how quickly it was approaching. Some on the ground listened to those above and began sprinting. Others continued at a leisurely pace, assuming they would still get to safety in time. And still others were elderly citizens. They moved as quickly as they could, but even a young man can hardly hope to outrun a tsunami. Then, in the distance, Takayuki could see the wave touch ground in the harbor, mere seconds since the frothing beast had first entered the bay. The water crashed against the city, buildings immediately collapsed beneath the crushing weight of the tyrannical wave. The debris was swept further into the city, 
former frames and girders transformed into deadly battering rams that were violently thrust against the remaining infrastructure. Wails of grief rose from the crowd of spectators. The town they had built, the town they had loved, their homes, their livelihoods, all being torn to shreds by the lashing arms of the ocean. In a matter of seconds, most of the city had succumbed to the powerful waves. The frothing white face of the tsunami that Takayuki had seen way out in the mouth of the bay was stained a disgusting brown, the color of dirt, debris, and blood. It was devastation writ large, and it just kept on going. The wave approached the mountainside with unbound fury. Takayuki turned the camera towards the base of the stairs where people were still walking. The crowds screamed at them to run, hurry. The water was almost upon them. But the wave was too fast and the people were too slow. Takayuki turned the camera away just before the water consumed them. He didn't want to film their deaths. Instead, he filmed the reactions of the crowd. As the people above watched the people below, their faces contorted in horror and grief. It was the most awful thing any of them had ever seen. Their horror was justified. The wave had destroyed their town and it had claimed the lives of roughly 1,250 people in Kamaishi alone. It was only 3.12 p.m. and the town of Kamaishi had become the first official victim of the 2011 Tohoku tsunami. It was far from the last. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. Next week, we'll cover the dozen other towns that were devastated by the 2011 Tohoku tsunami, and we'll detail the horrifying nuclear meltdown that ensued you can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Giles Hovseth and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.